Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, November 12th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of this show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So longtime listeners of this show might know that one of my favorite topics is how we get become the, our best selves. So how we how we train up uh, a very complex skill, you know, and then talking to individuals who have developed that kind of skill, like grandmaster chess champions. And so I was really interested in uh, hearing about Rowan Hooper's new book. It's called Superhuman, Life at the Extremes of Our Capacity, in part because it's not just your usual superhuman feats, like, you know, memorizing pie, although that's in there as well, or running the, the you know, world's fastest marathon, although things like that are in there as well. Um, but he also talks about human, you know, sort of feats like being a really good sleeper, being able to like immediately fall asleep when told to, or people who have extreme resilience. So in the face of, of terrible, terrible traumatic events, uh, people who still rise up and are able to, you know, see life, uh, see, see, the, see the bright side of life. So first of all, I want the sleep superhuman ability, like first and foremost. Uh, I think we all want that superhuman ability. You've covered so many of these stories of of people going to the to the extremes. Do you feel like there's so much that we have barely scratched the surface on in our exploration of of people at these extremes, even in these kind of mundane ways? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm I'm always one of these people who's very skeptical of the idea that it's all in our genes and therefore we don't have to study how it actually happens. Um, because, of course, these kinds of behaviors are incredibly complex. Yes, there's probably genetic drivers of them, but those genetic drivers do not act in a vacuum. And I think there's still a lot that we can learn, even if we don't have that particular genetic makeup um, from studying people who do have it uh, or, you know, those who are able to you know, create environments in which they've been able to succeed. And, you know, from my work at the San Francisco Conservatory of Music, where, you know, I, I teach musicians to become more effective at their practicing. And one of the things I've found is that when you bring musicians in the room who play different instruments, they all learn different things from each other. Um, you know, because for the most, most of the time when we are trying to develop a complex skill, we very much stay in our own bubble. We talk to other people who are very much like us. Um, but the data have been sh have shown now in, in many different ways that, you know, generalists actually fare better often uh, because they bring a new kind of view to the, the skill. They don't just do everything that everyone else is doing slightly more or slightly faster or, or you know, slightly harder. Um, instead, there's like these kinds of ways in which you can sort of make pretty big leaps in a in a sport or a field um, if you bring information from another field into it. So that's that's always something that is really exciting to me. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Rowan Hooper. Amy Arrett founded Madison Reed back in 2013 and she named it after her daughter. The company is on a mission to revolutionize the way women color their hair. So for decades, women have had two options. You could go to the salon and spend a lot of money, or you would do it at home with some outdated hair color. 
But Amy created Madison Reed because she believes that women deserve better. Madison Reed is reinventing the way women color their hair by offering the quality of salon color with the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients that you can feel good about. You'll look just like you came from a salon, but the reality is that you had more me time to do what you really love. Experience beautiful, multidimensional hair color made in Italy delivered to your door on your schedule for under 25 bucks. Join the hundreds of thousands of women who have tried and loved Madison Reed. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com. Madison Reed would like to honor Inquiring Minds listeners with 10% off plus free shipping on their first color kit with promo code MINDS. That's code M-I-N-D-S. Rowan Hooper, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Hi, great to be here. I was delighted to have your book come across my desk because it targets uh, two of my really deep interests. One is how it is that we develop expertise and become really good at something. Uh, and two, single case studies. <laughs> so putting the two together was really a thrill for me. Well, actually, it was a thrill to hear from you as well, because, um, uh, you know, I've got an opera, I've got a chapter on singing and I, I interviewed opera singers in my book. Um, and then there's so much neuroscience in the book. But to have those two things come together in one person is, is kind of amazing and slightly terrifying as well, actually. So, But I'm really interested to, to hear what you make of the sorts of things that uh, I discuss in the book. Yeah, no, I definitely, I have to admit, I skipped straight to the singing chapter <laughs> first and then went back to the others. Um, so that was really fun. And and anyway, so we'll talk about that. Um, but what I, really, I think what, what I'm fascinated by in, in terms of this book and, and what it adds, we, we had um, uh, uh, earlier this year, we had Alex Hutchinson on who wrote a book called Endure, um, which sort of talks about the kind of mental game that a lot of us have to go through in order to power through periods in which we think we're done. So he talks about, for example, marathon runners um, running not, you know, their best races, not necessarily when in their, they're in the best peak physical condition, but rather when their minds are able to get them through the hardest moments. So, so I wanted to start actually first talking about uh, that kind of mental game uh, that you that you describe in your book, which which a lot of books like yours, you know, where where people are talking about sort of endurance or or superhuman feats, actually don't target uh, traits like resilience or bravery. Um, so so what what made you think of those topics as as a, as a big part of of this kind of a, a work? When I set about writing the book, I wanted to not just think about athletic traits and um, sporting prowess, but all the things that humans can do that seem to be at a level far above what we see in other animals. Um, and that was really the starting point. I just became really impressed by the way that humans can take things to such an extraordinary level. So then I wanted to look at things that everyone can do and, and in fact, that you see in other animals as well, but that we have developed in one way or another to another to take to another level or several levels up. Um, so that's why there's things like bravery and resilience and longevity and even happiness in there that aren't typically the things you think of when you try to develop expertise. You know, it's not like your golf swing or, you know, singing ability um, or, or running. Um so that, that's why I, I want to look at things that humans, all of us can do to some extent, but that, um, but that some people manage to do to an extraordinary level. Yeah. So let's talk about uh, bravery. And I guess it's, you know, kind of counterpart, which is fear. <laughs> um, you know, I, I like to, my, my son is four and he has a lot of fears related to being four. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I keep trying to tell him like being brave is not about not feeling fear. It's about feeling fear and doing it anyway. <laughs> um, so that, you know, he's not ashamed of the fact that he's afraid. And I think a lot of us th actually feel that way, that, that if we're afraid, we're not brave. Oh, well, that's the thing. I mean, I think everyone who has done something brave will tell you that actually they they were afraid, but um, and that's the key thing they've they've managed to do something anyway whilst being afraid. Although actually, although that, that's what lots of people say, but then there's another kind of bravery where um, you can prepare to be brave for something. So th this is the kind of bravery you see where um, cabin crew and airliners, for example, go through a lot of training um, for. For in the rare occasion that there's a disaster that they have to be called upon to to um, you know evacuate an aircraft, they show incredible bravery. Um, 
a lot of times the passengers will be panicking, um, but the cabin crew just know exactly what to do. They don't appear frightened. Um, and that's because they've trained so hard for it. And it's the sort of training you see in the military uh, it, with um, fire officers, police officers, all sorts of people who have these kinds of jobs where they will encounter fearful situations. If you train and train and train, you get this kind of ability that you can go on autopilot and, and do something without really thinking about, actually, this is a, a crazily frightening thing for, to do if, if the rest of us would encounter that thing. So, so there's a kind of um, there's training you can do to prepare yourself for fear. Um, but, but as you say, there is a kind of um, bravery that people, people will do. Uh, they're, they're scared, but they do it anyway. And, and, and that's a really, really important point to make to people like to kids, you know, who think, oh, I'm scared. You know, how do, well, you know, everyone's scared when, when they're doing things. Uh, you've just got to do it anyway. So that, that's, that's a great point. And so what do we know about how training can change a person's response to these kinds of fearful situations? Um, is, there any, do, do, is there any neuroscience that, that demonstrates that actually, you know, the, it's, it's more about just getting into a routine and that takes over? Or, you know, do we see kind of just less uh, uh, fear or, or, or less emotional re- responses? What does the science say? Yeah, so the, the science shows that, um, it, it, well, first of all, it shows it's very complicated. There's lots going on. There's hormonal changes. There's, there are changes in, in the brain itself. Um, so there's some studies that show that um, in people who are highly trained to do something, um, when you then do that thing you've been trained to, the, the brain shows less activity than in people who um, are only doing that thing for the first time. So um, the brain does seem to go on some sort of autopilot. It can it can do it, and also it seems to engage um, sometimes the the amygdala, the area that can the, in the brain that um, sort of uh, operates and, and conducts a lot of fearful processes. That seems to be dampened down in in certain people as well. Um, so there's a lot that goes on in the brain. There's a lot that goes on hormonally in the brain as well. So um, cortisol, the stress hormone that's released. Um, it, at times, well, when we're under stress, and that, that includes when we're, we're scared, um, the release of that can be dampened down in people who um, are trained and uh, who have, have gotten used to doing something that the rest of us find scary. Yeah, I always tell people, you know, when they when they say things like, oh, well, when you play music, it activates so much of your brain. And I say, well, not if you're a professional musician, <laughs> actually, the more you train, the less you activate because your brain is becoming more efficient. Uh, and that's actually, you know, that's what makes you able to do these these sort of highly complex things, multiple uh, things at, at once. And I like it's good to know that the amygdala, you know, as as um, our listeners might remember from some of our, our previous uh, shows, really is involved in this modulation of the fear response uh, does show differences in activity with training. And of course, there are people that you describe in the book uh, that I've always been fascinated by that have, and I'm probably going to, you know, even though I teach about this disease, I, I always worry about my pronunciation, Urbach Vita disease. Is that how you pronounce it? You know what? I've, I don't think I've ever said it out loud. So <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't like to try and say it out loud. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah. yeah. So it's a disease in which uh, there's sort of calcification of the amygdala, which basically is like getting kidney stones, but in your in your fear center. Um, so tell us a little bit about those individuals. Yeah. So the, there's there's several people. Um, there's three women actually who are quite famous in the neuroscience literature for um, having a, um, a basically no amygdala. Their amygdala has been destroyed by this disease. It's been calcified and, and taken out. Um, and they literally are fearless. Um, and a, a moment's reflection will tell you that's a really not a good thing to have because they'll get themselves into really bad situations and not understand, just not comprehend that that they're in danger. Um, so there's one woman I describe in my book who's just known by the, her initials, um, who, you know, she's had a gun pulled on her um, and she's she's been abducted by a man. Um, and all the time, she's just thought, mm, "This is a bit odd. What's going on here?" But um, and, you know, the police have turned up, and people have been scared for her, and she's just been perplexed by why are people reacting like this? You know, um, uh, so she's literally got no fear. She's incapable of of feeling fear uh, because the amygdala is completely gone. So yeah, um, the amygdala is the thing that generates fear, but then the way. The, the activity of the amygdala is responsible for 
the, the kind of amount of fear that you feel or and conversely um the, the amount of bravery you can then show yeah and but she doesn't it's not like she has dampened emotions all around her she feels anger as far as i i, I can tell so it's 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 sort of specific uh, to fear, and and we all, you know on the other side of the spectrum, um, we've got people who have post traumatic stress disorder who also have some signs of of kind of an overactive uh, amygdala, and and you know part of the problem with PTSD is that you know you've got this this memory of a traumatic event that you can't turn off, and the amygdala plays a big role in modulating what we remember based on how afraid we were or how you know how emotional we were in the moment in which we experienced that thing. Yes. So I, I wanted to actually sort of talk about like the application of the training for feel for situations that I think is particularly relevant for people who have kids who go to school in the US because right now there's a big debate about whether you should train kids to respond if there is an active shooter in the school, which, you know, it, it mm. makes me want to throw up that we have to actually yeah. do this. Yeah, um, sure. But, you know, people are or schools are essentially having these active shooter drills uh, and they range in, you know, from, you know, just the principal coming on the you know PA and just saying code red and then the kids aren't really told what that means, but rather they're just told they have to hide under their desks to, you know, the kids being being told what it is and and literally having a person in the hallways shooting blanks which sounds like Good. totally traumatic yeah. yeah yeah so in your in your kind of um you know research in this kind of you know in the science of this what do you think about those kinds of interventions and and the sort of fine line that we have to sort of walk between traumatizing kids and actually making that fear much worse uh, and training them so that they can respond in a way that might save their lives. Well, so I think that if you were to train them with someone firing blanks in the hallway and they actually went through the, you know, you'd have to do that repeatedly. So they became, um, you know, it'd become almost normal for them to go, they'd go oh yeah, it's, it's like gunfire lesson. And they'd have to like, uh, they'd all do what they, uh, you know, been told to do. They'd go through the drill. Um, then if kids became so used to that, that it actually happened, that they would be able to respond without, you know, freezing in in terror like 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 we, the rest of us would, or or many of us would, and it may actually work as to to save kids' lives. As to whether though it's worth the trauma, so the problem is you would be playing on fears, um, and you may you may then have kids um, deeply worried about what's going to happen to them just from their, you know, going to school every day. So um, you, you really have to balance um, whether you think that's that, that risk of, um, of traumatizing them, as you say, is worth the training um, that they, the training response that they would receive from doing that. Um, I'm not sure it is, to be honest. Yeah, I agree with you. And and in fact, I, I don't think that in, in my personal opinion, we should do any kinds of drills like that simply because the, the law of large numbers is such that, you know, it seems that it happens all the time, but it's still such a rare event in any one child's life um, that, yeah, the potential traumatizing effects, I think, are, are a bigger worry. You're going to traumatize, you know, even if only, say, 1% of the kids that you train get traumatized, that's still a much, much larger number over the course, you know, in the entire country than than kids who would die in, in, in shooting events. Right. I mean, what's, what's much more, what would be much more useful would be to, on the terrible occasions when this does happen, is to immediately provide the children um, at that school with um, personalized um, trauma counseling and help them through, the especially the first few days, absolutely critical to the way memories are put down, the way children will remember um, that the incident and uh, and be traumatized by it, and this is how PTSD develops. It's in the it's in the first instance and first even first few nights or first night after uh, a traumatic event, um, and so it's getting it would be getting the kids through that that immediate aftermath of a of a terrible event. Um, so I would say you know if if you're thinking about committing resources to this sort of thing, you would you would do it in in the way that that would target schools that have been through a, a, such a terrible trauma and, and put the resources there to help them in the aftermath rather than try to prepare all school kids across the country for, the, for this unlikely situation. 
So that gets us to the topic of resilience, uh, you know, which is a, which is a separate topic from bravery. Uh, so tell us a little bit about um, the woman who inspired that particular chapter. Yeah. Um, so this is a woman called Carmen Tarleton. She went through an incredible, uh, incredibly traumatic event. She was a she was a nurse, just a regular woman. She she was married, but they were separated. And um, one evening, her estranged husband turned up at her house. Um, he thought she'd been having um, a relationship with someone else, and she hadn't been. But but anyway, um, and he went crazy and attacked her, and um, just inflicted horrific injuries on her. And um, I spoke to her surgeon. He said it was the most it was the most traumatic injuries or the most um, horrendous injuries he'd ever seen on a human who'd survived. Um, and they they didn't know that she could possibly have survived it. Uh, she just about did. She was in a coma for three months. When she came to, she'd she'd had both, most of her skin burnt off, um, including all of her face, her her eyelids. So she was totally unrecognisable, and she'd had something like thirty four different skin grafts all over her body. Um, and and yet when she when she came out of that coma after three months, she saw herself in the mirror and it was an absolutely horrific, I've seen photos of what she looked like then. It was, it's truly shocking. Um, she immediately realized that something incredibly powerful and weird had happened to her that she could then take control of and use. And, and she decided not to be defined by this event, but to take control, not to, not necessarily to, to be, destroyed by it but to take control and and change her life around um so she started doing um inspirational speaking um even looking like she did and she would tell people look it's not what you look like it's what you make of yourself um and and it was incredibly powerful to hear that that sort of a message from someone who looked like that um however she was in a lot of pain because of all the skin grafts she'd had um and in the end, she had a face transplant. I think she was only the fifth woman in the US to have a face transplant. So her life changed again completely. Her whole identity changed because suddenly she was now wearing the face of someone else. So she was not only physically resilient, which was impressive enough. It, it's actually, it was kind of the mental resilience that, that was most impressive from her. Um, a, a really inspirational woman talking to her. Um, the way she has taken control of her life and the way she she understands what her life is about and what other people's lives can be and the way she talks about that is is absolutely inspiring. So what do we know from the scientific perspective about what you know makes one person react to a situation and make it you know making lemonade out of lemons and another person who you know is traumatized by it and and really just can't get over it? Yeah, well, one thing that's that's quite odd, actually, that we don't really think about that much is that when I, I spoke to psychiatrists who work with trauma victims and people with PTSD, um, and, and these people are, are quite rightly um, given a lot of help and they're studied, um, but actually they turn out to be the minority of people who go through trauma. It turns out that most people who have something bad happen to them um, actually get over it. Um, and and they you know they don't end up going to the doctors and they don't end up going getting studied because they're fine. So it's only the ones where you know there's there's some medical problem with some condition develops that um, quite rightly um, get studied. But what the psychiatrists and some evolutionary biologists said to me was, well, actually, um, it makes sense that we would all have within ourselves the ability to bounce back after trauma of some kind, mental or physical trauma. Because it happens to us all that we, you know, you'd imagine that we've evolved to have this function. You don't know. Most of us don't know it's there that we, we'd have to dig deep. Most of us, thankfully, would not have to dig as deep as Carmen Tarleton did to survive and to get over something so traumatic. But many people, when, they, when, they, when it is called, when they are called upon, uh, they find within themselves this incredible resilience. So, um, you know, it, it turns out that it's it's there in more people than you might expect. Yeah, so I think that that sort of also is a nice way of turning to the topic that um, I'm most familiar with, which is the expertise in singing area. Um, and this kind of question of the 
relative influence of, say, innate genetic based talent uh, and yeah. practice. And so you talk yeah. you talk a lot about that. And um, so I yeah. want to I want to sort of, you know, kind of start there and, and I'll, I'll hand you the the um, the microphone first and, and have you explain what you think uh, sort of is the is the kind of relative distribution. Oh, no, I I'm really interested to know what what you think. Okay, but shall I shall I say what? Yeah. So uh, what I did in in the book actually, as a whole, was is ask people who are at the top of the game for some particular skill or ability, Um, and I asked them, you know, where do you think your this expertise comes from? Um, Is it is it innate? Do you feel like it was always there, or do you feel um, you've you've really had to work at it? Um, and and what and what proportion of of it, it you know would you assign to nature or nurture? And for for singing, both the opera singers I spoke to, who are, who are you know world class opera singers, said, "Oh, it's um, it's practice. It's it's mostly to do with the the amount of practice I've put in throughout my life." Um, so I thought, well, okay, but now let's talk to geneticists and people who study, you know cognitive singing ability and, and all of the all of that sort of thing neuroscientists who look into singing and they all said to me oh no no it's genetics it's, it's mostly genetics so the funny thing is that well at first glance you might think it's funny that uh, the geneticists and the scientists think that there's a lot of um of the expertise in singing and musical ability as well uh, a large portion of that can be explained by genetics in other words you're in you have an innate ability or you don't but the, then the experts themselves the, the people who are world-class singers and musicians feel that it's the practice they've put in um well of course they they think that because they've practiced so hard they've worked so hard they've put hours and hours in throughout their lives since they were kids so to for them to then say well it wasn't really that it's it's my it's just innate you know would be would, would kind of seem to um, misrepresent the, or, or put aside all that time they've spent practicing. Um, I mean, of course, to be the best opera singer in the world, you not only have to have this genetic leg up into to be able to sing like that, but you do also need to practice, right? You can't just, you know, be an innately great opera singer. You have to practice in many ways. Um, but I think what the the point of all this is that um, many people hadn't considered that the the genetic component was was as important um, as it turns out to be. Um, and then there's one more thing that I thought was absolutely extraordinary, which is that the amount of practice. So by doing twin studies, by looking at twin studies, which is comparing. A tra- the amount of, of work someone does at a trait, so in this case it, it would be singing and, and practice into singing, um, in twins, geneticists have found that the amount of practice that someone puts into singing is itself um, has a large genetic component. So it's not only the genetic ability for the trait itself, but it's the um, amount you put into practice that uh, has a has a genetic background to it. Yeah. So, you, I mean, that's exactly, I, I could not summarize the work uh, better myself. I think you, you've exactly hit the nail on the head. And I, I have to say that for a long time, uh, I just refused to read any, any scientific studies on sort of musical expertise development, because it just didn't ring true to me, this idea that there was a big genetic component. Um, because yeah, I'm one of the people who puts in a lot of practice. And the only way that I saw improvement is if I practiced more and better. <laughs> um, so the one sort of like major kind of beef I have with the sort of mosing and, and, and sort of genetic studies, though, is that I really think that you can't just lump all practice or people's, you know, reports of how they practice into the same bin, uh, because there is such a huge variability on what you can do even in a single practice session. And I think, you know, I, I always um, sort of feel bad for Anders Ericsson because I think he's he, he really has been swept aside in a way that is not fair because he really does talk about specific features of deliberate practice that, you know, in a lot of these studies, they just gloss over. Um, you know, it, it really is 
so so I think that that's one big problem with the genetic studies is that is that we can't really be sure that every hour that each of these twins <laughs> spent in the practice room is going to be equal because I can sit in the practice room and l- check Facebook <laughs> for hours and tell you I practice for 10 hours and get zero benefit. I, you know, a, a sort of more relevant uh, example is that I can sit uh, at the piano and practice scales for 10 hours and see no improvement. And, and really by the 10th repetition, I am not improving anymore. In fact, I'm giving myself um, a, a higher likelihood of getting injured, uh, and so forth. So but but if I practiced using what we know are the most effective practice strategies, like varying uh, the conditions. So, you know, in the case of the scales, you know, not just going, you know, from, you know, C to D to E, etc, but rather just randomly picking which scale to do, and how fast and how loud. Um, and, and really having a variable practice session, I'm going to be much better at the end of even 20 minutes than I would be after four hours. Yeah, I mean, um, Ericsson is, you know, he, he's become more well known because, as you know, because Malcolm Gladwell publicized his work. Um, but he's taken quite strenuous issue with, with Gladwell's um, popularization in the 10,000 hours rule. Um, because um, Ericsson says, well, it's not just any old 10,000 hours of practice it's you've got to have this specific kind of practice as you say for it to for it to work but the I, what I would say to from all the geneticists I've spoken to is that the the 10,000 hours it doesn't matter if there's just 10,000 hours practice you need to have this genetic component to it um, and the problem with the the Ericsson and the environmental brigade is that they would really downplay the, the the genetic side of it so the the geneticists will say well of course you need to practice as well but what we're saying is that there is this big genetic component you have to have whereas the the Ericsson and the Malcolm Gladwell side of, of things will will say actually all you need is practice and 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 that's really the the, the issue I would have with it is that from, from all the work I've seen is that you you just to be the best we're talking about not just to be an adequate singer but to be the best you have to have a genetic, there has to be this genetic component that you, you need. Yeah. And, and I think that, it, you know, bringing in a sort of slightly different analogy too. you know, so, so let's let's take basketball as an example where, you know, we ni- we know that height is is highly genetic. It's not exclusively genetic. If you don't give a kid enough food, they're not going to grow as tall as they might otherwise. Um, but it's, it's like something like 80 percent, you know, determined by your genes. Um, so that's a pretty simple trait. And the taller you are, the sort of better you might be at basketball, you know, early on or, or, or what have you that, that you might have, you know, you're, you're closer to the basket. So you know, it's easier for you to put the ball into it. And yet we have, you know, some of the best basketball players are not the tallest necessarily. I mean, there, there are a few exceptions. Um, but let's take Michael Jordan as an example of someone who is considered one of the best basketball players of all time. He was not that tall. He was certainly wasn't the tallest. Um, but one of the things that he had going for him is that he also didn't specialize in basketball too early. So there's this kind of interesting finding that some people who become the best at what they do actually came to that thing a little bit later, which kind of it's a bit of a conundrum. On the one hand, the geneticists will say, well, see, it's 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 in their genes. It doesn't matter how they practice. But I actually think that's that's kind of not really true, because I think that the kind of variety of things that they did early on, first of all, help them find the thing that they are really good at, which, you know, a lot of us are practicing the wrong thing, (laughs) right? But also gave them a kind of sense that, you know, how they practice, I I think matters, because now they're not just going to, you know, do the same thing over and over and over again, they've been exposed to other ways of doing things. So they're going to bring in, you know, skills that they learned in those other areas that will put them ahead of the people who have just been doing the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the most extraordinary um, scientific papers I came across when I was researching the book, and I've uh, in- interviewed uh, the, the scientist who wrote it up, was a comparison of athletes at the Olympic Games. Um, so these are all top athletes who have qualified for the Olympics. And what the scientists did was split the athletes into those who had um, achieved medals, and those who had just managed to qualify and, and go to the Olympic Games and compete. And when he, when he um, controlled them all for age and the sport they were doing and gender, he found that the ones who'd won medalists had specialized later, as you say, they specialized in their sport later than the others, 
Um, and they'd actually done less training in that sport when they were kids um, than the, the, the ones who had not achieved medals. So they'd, they'd tended to do other different sports. So they'd you know, had less risk of injury. They'd become more all round. And they'd also managed to find the one that was the absolute best fit for them, both, both mentally, it's the one they liked best, but physically, it was the absolute right fit for them. So uh, I thought that was amazing that the, the medalists had actually done less, less training as kids than the, the ones who are still top international athletes, but they, they had failed to get medals. Yeah. And so the geneticists would point to that and say, see, <laughs> it's, it was in their genes all along. And I guess I would argue that, I, you know, gene, this kind of gene behavior interaction is so complicated. I mean, we're really talking about um, so many different things from motivation and resilience and, you know, just some intellectual uh, uh, traits and so forth beyond the physical, uh, that it becomes almost uninformative to just say, well, it's just your genes. Um, I'm more interested in finding out what it is about you know, that the situation or about, you know, those that particular genetic makeup uh, that sets these people apart. And, and you know, I don't think you're going to find even a set of candidate genes. Ultimately, um, I think you're going to find that we all have latent gene, you know, kind of uh, sort of, um, I guess, distributions that would make us you know, potentially really great at something. Uh, but the question is, how do we find that thing? And how do we ensure that not only we find that thing, but we also love that thing? Uh, and that I don't think is is going to be quite satisfactorily explained by it's in our genes. No, um, but the thing is, I don't know geneticists would, would say that either. You know, they, they all acknowledge that um, you need, that, that there is a massive environment, a gene environment interaction. Um, I think it's perhaps just, you know, a media, a simplistic media report when they would say such and such is in our genes or to turn it the other way, that it's all to do with the amount we train and, and nothing to do with our genes. So, you know, it's a mixture of the two. And it's probably just as oversimplification to to say otherwise. I mean, a lot of what the, the geneticists say, um, well, and the way I characterize it actually is is I call it the Goldilocks principle, like try lots of different things until you find the one that's that's totally right for you, just like Goldilocks did, um, and 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 that's a that will be a um, a result of matching, uh, as you say, a, a gene environment interaction and finding the one that is perfect for you. And I, I also think that you can't negate the fact that by trying lots of things, you kind of develop more of a growth mindset of like, oh, you know, I might not have been good at that thing, but you know, I didn't really. I, as I put more work into it, I got better or this other thing. I mean, I think that's kind of variability in terms of um, rather than just thinking, hey, you know, I'm going to try something once. And if I'm not good at it, I'm going to quit. I don't think that that's the solution. You know, I think that that just the the act of trying different things um, makes you like, for example, um, learning a second language makes it easier for you to learn third, fourth, fifth languages, ultimately, um, because you kind of learn how to learn. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, and and if you're trying different things like perhaps different sports or different skills, um, failing is good. Learning to fail and 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 learning what it means to fail and then how to fail better and 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 to learn from your mistakes and and to understand that you know you do need to try different things and and you need to work at stuff to get to get good at it. Um, that's a that's a critically important thing to to get your head around. Yeah, and now you're 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 seeing all the Silicon Valley friends here nodding. Yes, <laughs> failing better. <laughs> um, so I want to kind of end with with a a topic that I I was really surprised to find in your book, but really happy to read about it too, which is the sense of happiness, which you know, also does seem to be sometimes an extreme sport, especially here in California. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about what you found in terms of what makes one person declare that they are happy um, compared to someone else. Yeah, well, this was, a this was a tricky chapter to write because for all the other chapters, you know, the book's called Superhuman. Um, I, I found people who are the best in the world at their particular trait or ability. So for opera singers that we've just been talking about, that was quite easy. Um, or for runners, I could find, you know, you could find the best runners, but for happiness, like how do you find the happiest people in the world? So this took a while, thinking about it, talking to different people, until someone put me in touch with someone who said, "Yeah, you should you should speak to this woman. Um, you know, she she's remarkably happy." And this is a woman called Shirley Parsons who had locked-in syndrome, 
so what that is is when you have a typically a brainstem stroke and you become completely paralyzed but your mind is completely intact and and remains the same as as it was so it means you're in a wheelchair you have to be typically fed through a tube you can no longer speak but everything all your thoughts and your yourself is is completely the same so for many years doctors and and typically this still happens um in hospitals and amongst pe- patients and and relatives of of people with this condition you th- you look at them and think oh my goodness that what a terrible life they must be having because look how their life has changed at what they're not able to do they can't even speak they can't eat they must be miserable um and no one actually asked them how they were doing and how they felt for many years. And it's only relatively recently psychologists have, have thought to ask them because you just think, well, I assume your life is awful. But when they did ask them, it, it turns out a surprisingly large number of people with this condition report, actually, I'm quite content. You know, I've, I've got um, a pretty good life. Uh, they might say, look, I, can you not put me in front of the TV at 3 p.m. every day because I'm sick of that show that you're making me watch. But they they actually have a very rich inner life and they've um, they've started to understand themselves a lot more. So I went to meet a woman um, who I'd got to, um, I got to know through on email because she can operate um, a computer using this eye tracking software, a bit like um, Stephen Hawking used to have. Um, and she she was very witty. Um, she'd taken two degrees whilst she'd been locked in just by typing out her essays through her computer system. Um, just an incredibly interesting and kind of vivacious woman. Um, so I went to meet her. And of course, you know, it's an extraordinary thing to an interaction because, you know, she's locked in. She's in her wheelchair and she's unable to to, to move to greet me or to talk. And yeah, I'd kind of got to know her on email and, and, and thought of her as this very sort of a woman with such an active mind. And yet when you see them, people like this, it's, you know, there's such, this, such a contrast between what, you, what you've got to know and, and then the person you see. All this is to say that there are ways of achieving happiness that are completely different from what the rest of us typically think about when we're perhaps trying to move to a, a better house or afford a new car or, you know, buy new clothes and all those sorts of things that we try to race towards when we're, we're thinking, what's going to make me happy? So I, I started speaking to philosophers and people who'd, who'd come at the question in different ways. And, and I, I just got a different understanding of, of what it takes to be happy and what, we, what you might need to, to do that in your life. And, and end, I ended up thinking, well, look, you don't need to to have locked in syndrome to 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 reach this conclusion but you can just start thinking about what's important to you in your life in a different way and make small changes to perhaps to your to your job if you're doing a job you don't like and and put yourself in a position where you're doing things that make you a bit happier in that moment and i think that's the most important thing that happiness is a feeling um like being hot or cold and we know it when we've got it. We don't need to, I think it's not worth stressing too much about what exactly happiness is, but the immediate everyday happiness, we all know it when we've got it and we can we can tweak our lives accordingly to try and make it and get a bit more of it. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, what I really liked about that is that it, it kind of underscores this idea that unless you have a, a sort of pathology, so, you know, if you're, if you've got some, some, uh, parts of your brain that are, are make you prone towards depression, then to a large extent, being content really is a mental game. Um, it reminded me of, of a lot of work that suggests that um, one of the ways in which we, you know, can feel happiness is how we compare ourselves to others. So we're, you know, our brains just, you know, are constantly making comparisons because it's just, you can't, you know, it's, it's very hard for us as humans to just sort of think about absolutes. We're just thinking like, you know, is my house better than the house of my neighbor? You know, is my job better than that of my colleagues and so forth? We're constantly doing that. And, you know, A, if you can stop doing that or surround yourself with people who are 
<laughs> less good than you. Um, you know, that's one route to happiness. Um, but yeah, also this this sense of sort of like staying in the moment. And, you know, there's, there's lots of nice work coming out now showing that sort of mind wandering can lead you to feel depressed, because usually what happens when you let your mind wander is you think about things that you either have to do in the future or that have gone poorly for you in the past, um, rather than staying in the present, which is what you know, being a meditator now, people are are sort of training themselves to stay in the present, and that does seem to correlate with with higher scores of happiness. So I, I liked how, you know, there's there is this kind of sense now, at least in the neuroscientific literature, that uh, happiness is a state that is achievable. It's not a state that just happens to us. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point that um, that anyone can get hold of and that and and you can do it very simply and it and it's actually quite easy to do you don't have to you know go on some zen retreat for months and figure figure it out you just can make small changes to your life um or even just to the your way of thinking um and you find an improvement there you know and let's not get carried away we're not going to suddenly be you know bursting with joy kind of happiness but we're just talking about your your day-to-day contentedness and that's a really important thing. That's nothing to be to be scoffed at or to be underplayed. It's a it's a really important part of our well being. Um, and and the more time, the more we can understand that, and perhaps just make these small changes to our way of thinking, um, that the happier, in this sense, we're we're going to be. And that's a great thing. So I want to remind our listeners that Rowan Hooper's book Superhuman: Life at the Extremes of Our Capacity is available now at booksellers everywhere. Um, Rowan, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. Great to chat. All right. So let's pick, go back to the happiness, the extreme happiness case, uh, which was just so incredibly bizarre to me. Yeah. You know, I think, I think, you know, a lot of us think about people who uh, have locked in syndrome as being among the most miserable. And in fact, one of my favorite films is Diving Bell and the Butterfly that sort of describes the, the, just just the frustration uh, that, that these individuals must feel uh, when essentially they've been robbed of, of their ability to do everything except perhaps blink or, you know, have one small movement left. And yet the story of the woman who, you know, has locked in syndrome and yet that she's found a kind of bliss to me was really interesting Um, yeah that is just not the descriptions i've heard of that syndrome either and uh to to find this sort of incredibly it almost sounded peaceful i know i know he described it as blissful but i took away a sense of just like of contentment too um as part of that yeah, I mean, I think it does goes to show that, you know, happiness can be for a lot of us a state of mind, you know, it's like, it's like, it's something that we can choose to be or choose not to be, um, depending on on how we sort of frame our own thinking and, and our own rumination. Well, I have to be honest, I'm not one of those people that chooses happiness all the time, um, or very often at all. Uh, I tend to be a little cynical. So I want to come back to a slightly cynical thought I had at the beginning of the show, which was basically... Hooper really studied some people at the very extremes of life, you know, people with diagnosed medical conditions that are are so far out there, bringing it back to like a you and me, like sort of more of the quote unquote average people uh, in the world. What are we really deriving as lessons from from these extreme cases? Because is the sense that I can choose happiness reinforced by this person at the edge really going to uh, bring that mentality to me. Hey, who are you calling average? <laughs> <laughs> I'm calling myself average. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, but no, I mean, I totally see where you're coming from. Uh, and I think that that's actually, you know, it, it seems to me that throughout the book, that is one of Rowan's uh, conclusions is that, you know, that that, that some people are just uh, are just unique, you know, or, or special in some way because of their genetics or, you know, just some other explained factor. And I, you know, to me, I, I just, I, I don't always buy that because I, I feel like, yes, yes, we're all sort of, you know, unique in our own ways. And there are some people who are extremely good at things that I will never, you know, be even remotely capable at. Um, and, and, but I, I, I still think that there is a kind of, to me, it's just exciting. There's there's a lot to discover. You know, it's like I, it reminds me, 
you know, of, of this kind of notion that science really is about ignorance, right? That, you know, it's, it's, it's the unknown. And so when people talk about these superhuman feats uh, as, as, hey, you know, there's still some magic there because that I don't, we don't understand why that person is able to do what they're, do, what they're doing. To me, I see like, you know, well, that's ripe for scientific study. <laughs> it's funny because we so readily accept physical feats like Michael Phelps being able to swim as fast as he can. And, and, and I will never be able to do that. There's some limitation I have that will never let me break through that barrier. But we are so less willing, or at least I am, less willing to accept feats when it comes to uh, emotions or uh, our brain um, or uh, things that we feel like are a little bit more under our control. But there must be functional differences between us. I mean, there are, and there are structural differences between us, right? Um, you know, recently there's been another paper that's come out about, you know, one once more tackling the question of how different male and female brains are and, and so forth. And, you know, I don't, I don't even want to go there because it's such a complicated topic. But, you know, I think that is something that we are all inherently interested in. You know, why can you do that thing that I can't do and, and vice versa? Why are we sort of different? And, and so, I, you know, I think it continues to be fascinating. And I think that sometimes, you know, we do there, there there are things that we can learn from people who are able to do these feats that or at least, you know, they're sort of like case studies that help us frame better questions. Um, so that's one thing that I always, you know, see a case study, you know, it's, it's a it's an N of one. So it's not going to be the definitive answer for all of us. It's not going to apply to an entire population. And yet it can help us frame the question or frame the experiment um, that will help us get to know ourselves a little bit better. Well, and in the meantime, end, in oh, the meantime, sorry. yeah. So, so what I, what I, when, when at the very top, you talked about how you know being able to fall asleep quickly uh, was the one feat that you really wish you had. And you know, let me give you a quick tip uh, that we got from the book that I thought Is was really interesting. If it's so, bourbon, I'm into it. <laughs> It's definitely not bourbon. That's, you know, we can bring that walker back to to uh, make sure that you understand that alcohol actually disrupts your sleep. Uh, but uh, it's 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 this idea of, of sort of meditating and quieting your body before you fall asleep. And, you know, a lot of us might have heard of something called body scanning, where, you know, you kind of start at like the tip of your toes and you relax your toes and then you move to your ankles and you kind of like, you know, kind of scan your body using mental imagery and kind of, you know, imagining relaxing all of these muscles and and that that's eventually supposed to put you to sleep well interestingly enough the navy seal training uh makes you start the body scan from the head down not from the feet up uh and so for a lot of people just like relaxing their facial muscles gets them to fall asleep much more quickly so there you go tip for you from the navy seals who am i to deny a navy seal uh training regimen so i guess i'll be trying this tonight so that's it for another episode I hope you get some good sleep I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds and we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald Kyle Rahala, Joel Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark Jordan Millar, Herring Chang and Sean Johnson you can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds where you can get an ad-free version of this show Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. Who has a new album out? You should definitely check it out. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.